With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, where we talk G5 football and only G5 football for Underdog Dynasty. This is the eighth edition of what we've been calling Joe Talk, and that's me, Joe Serpico, and my buddy Joey Brovac on the other line, and we talk American athletic football. Joey, say what's up to everyone. What's going on? Glad to be back, back at it, talk about some some AAC football here. Yeah, we've taken a couple of weeks off uh, for some personal issues that we don't really have to get into because you guys probably don't care anyways. So what we're going to do with this episode is, since we've been away for a little bit, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a recap of what's happened heading into this year. And with that said, we're kind of going to go over our midseason awards since we are at now the midway point of the year as we get ready to enter into week seven of the college football season. Um, usually we do this in order of our power rankings, but we're going to switch it up here. We're going to go with what we feel are our best bets for at least for this point, regular or end of the season honors. So Joey, I think we're both in unanimous on this one with who we're going to go with for AAC offensive player of the year. And that's Mackenzie Milton. They're 4-0 ranked in the top 25. First time they've been 4-0 ever since they've jumped up to the uh, FBS level. Tell me what you think about Milton and the crazy year that he's had so far this year. The thing with players of the year, I noticed, is it tends to be more of a trendy pick, and even if they don't have necessarily the best stats, and Milton certainly doesn't, and that has more to do with the fact that he's played less games than other players in the conference, but his team's success is definitely launched his campaign to be offensive player of the year i thought he was going to be an elite runner and he would have to improve as a passer and this would be a transition year for him but he's completing 68 percent of his passes and has only thrown two picks so far and he's averaging 11 and a half yards per attempt which is astronomical for for him going into this season um so He's been very almost a surprise player uh, in terms of his production, but I think having a cast around him that features a ton of playmakers and a defense that keeps the other offense off the field has been extremely helpful for him as well. You can't argue that just because of the fact that I mean UCF is really one of those teams that you know obviously Milton's in charge of it as the quarterback of the offense, but there's hasn't been like one guy that has really, really stood out. Like they all contribute in some way or another, the entire offense, I mean, and that, but, and then it's been Milton that's been the uh, beneficiary of that, to be honest. 
Well, you kind of mentioned a little bit about like his statistics earlier. Um, I think what impressed me the most is is that he's number two in the country in pass efficiency, and he's only behind Baker Mayfield, who I you know I think most feel right now could be the front runner or maybe just behind for the Heisman Trophy, and he's by far probably the best passer we've seen so far this year. And he's throwing for 291 yards a game. You mentioned earlier we didn't really expect them to be this throwing team that they've become. We thought they would probably pound the rock a little bit more. But it's by far it has to be Milton. And you know I guess we can both agree that it's been kind of a surprise because I, I think we both can argue that we kind of thought it was either going to be Riley Ferguson or Quentin Flowers that's going to run away with this honor. Right, and Flowers and Ferguson are still having great years. I think people forget about about Ferguson because they lost the game, and they're forgetting about Flowers because USF hasn't played anybody, and it's just that Milton and UCF are getting all the attention right now. So once the year progresses, if Milton can keep this up, there's no reason why he shouldn't win it. But I think the race is closer than people realize. I can't argue that. Now, if if Memphis comes out... You know, this week and Ferguson throws another seven touchdown passes. I think we can both agree that that probably launches him back up on top of, of Milton just as, just that quick, just because, I mean, the guy is a phenomenal football player. But let's just keep it going a little bit. We're going to dive into what's next, which is the defensive player of the conference. Actually, I just want you to just start it off with, with because we both didn't pick Ed Oliver just because we felt like that was the obvious. So kind of just say that what you said before the podcast, because what you said is 100% true of why we both didn't pick him, because really it's just the stats aren't there, but he just still dominates every game. Yeah, it's like we talked about, Ed's the yeah, best player in the conference. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's not even a question, and I don't, I don't see how anybody can think otherwise. But with teams focusing on him and printing double teams and they're chipping him, all game, it's it's harder for him to get stats, but it gives him more opportunities for his teammates to make plays. But if you watch the games, he's beating double teams, he's dominating one-on-one matchups, and he's getting a bunch of quarterback hurries and making plays in other ways. He's not getting the stats, which is why he won't probably win Defensive Player of the Year, but... You literally could give him the award, the award every single year, and there shouldn't be any argument. So that's why I think that he will deserve it, but he's not going to get it. Now, I had Delvin Randall from Temple, safety from Temple. Uh, he's got 45 tackles, three and a half for a loss, a sack, and two picks. And while that's, those are great stats, it's not something that you want your safety to produce simply because that usually means the opposing running backs are breaking through to his level. And if you watch Temple games, that is the case. He's making a ton of plays because the front seven isn't making nearly as many stops. But it is good to see him making those, and it's strengthening his campaign for Defensive Player of the Year so far. Yeah, I already said before the show that I agree with you on that. I actually had two players written down, Randall being one. You kind of said everything that, honestly, I would have said. He's consistently making plays. I mean, he has probably himself saved a good share of touchdowns for the Temple defense. He's doing it all, whether it's be you know, stacking the box and making the tackles on the backfield when they're playing running teams or making the plays on the defensive side when they're going against teams that like to throw. So... 
I will say I kind of agree with you there that Randall is might be the front runner for that, but I'm also going to mention, like I said, I had two guys written down. The other guy I've written down is Justin Lawler from SMU. He's got six sacks on a year, eight tackles for a loss, 37 tackles from a defensive end, which is pretty damn impressive. You just mentioned that defensive linemen, they don't get a ton of tackles. It's usually the guys behind them that do. 37 from a defensive lineman, that's pretty impressive. So I went with Justin Lawler there. I think he's going to rack up more sacks. Now, some might argue, and I did a little bit before we got on here, that he did get four of those sacks in one game, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, he just played his heart out and he, another guy kind of like Oliver, like you have to do things to take him out of the game. And, and then some of the other guys can step up for him, but to keep it going, this was a new unanimous pick here again for special teams player of the year. We both are going to go with Tony Pollard. And I mean, it's, it's not even an argument just because of the fact he's the only player in the conference with the special teams touchdown and he's got two of them. Yeah, he's fun to watch, and it's amazing that teams will still kick to him with his success in the past. And I think maybe people thought, oh, he was a freshman last year. We have ways to figure out what he's going to do. And with a talent like him, you just you can't account for his speed and his knack for finding the end zone. And it's he hasn't had a big role in the offense yet, but I think he's going to get more touches just because he is so dynamic as a returner and if teams still keep kicking to him he has a chance to break break a big big run anytime yeah i'm honestly surprised that they don't use him more on offense just because of how elusive he is in space it's one of those things that maybe just going forward that we could see a little bit more of this was something that just literally just popped in my mind now just because of the fact you kind of mentioned a freshman returner um it's on the same team do you have somebody in your mind that would be your freshman of the year? Because to me, this sticks out right away is, is Daryl Henderson for that same team. And might be part of the reason why Pollard's not getting on the field is just because he's been phenomenal as a freshman for, for Memphis. Yeah, they have a lot of talent on that side of the ball, which is a big reason why Pollard's not getting as many touches. Even Henderson, you mentioned, has competition. Patrick Taylor has been in the backfield as well and takes up some of the reps. And there's just so many weapons on that offense that its touches are kind of hard to come by, which also limits their stats. I think Miller's a focal point right now. And like you said, Henderson is, Henderson's got some serious wheels, which going into this season, we didn't think that that was going to be the case. But now with his emergence, I think that's taken away from Pollard's potential. But if Tony Pollard is your fourth or fifth best option on your offense, I think you're going to be successful going forward. Yeah, and I just mean, I don't know why I thought Henderson was a freshman. I just wanted to bring him up. I don't know why I did that, but I just did want to bring him up just because he's had another phenomenal year. We couldn't talk about a running back, I guess, running back of the year for the conference so far. It was just somebody I wanted to bring up. But... Let's dive into, and again, this is probably another unanimous decision here, who we have for coach of the year so far. It's got to be Scott Frost at this point, I would think, um, 4-0. But I think what's most impressive about it is they're not just winning all these games. They are beating the hell out of a lot of the teams they're playing against, too. Yeah, and the offensive 
progression with Milton is a big reason for that. And you've in obviously with Scott Frost, people are going to go right to the offense because that's his specialty. And you you saw what he did at Oregon, and you see what he's doing with the Knights. But I think the defense is the biggest surprise. I mean, they gave up ten points to Maryland, who scored thirty one the next week, which was really impressive. And they, like you said, they're just blowing teams out of the water and they're doing it on both sides of the ball. Now the Cincinnati game was in the third quarter and they had already given up 23 points, but I mean, everybody's going to have a bad game and it's going to happen eventually. But even look at the Memphis game the week before to score 40 points was expected, but to only give up 13 to that offense, it, I think was the more impressive feat. That's 100% true. I, I mean, I thought it going into that game, that was going to be a, a shootout for sure, and it turned out to be anything but. I mean, just to throw some more stats out there for what Frost has done, and I'm I'm stealing this from the from the network, I guess, but I think there's stats you need to throw out there. They are leading the country in scoring, which is no surprise considering how they've literally blown out every team. But you mentioned that defense, and – they are in the top 11 in scoring defensive well. The only team, the only other teams in the country that are in the top 11 in, in offense and defense are two pretty damn good ones. One is Alabama. One is Washington. That's not bad at all. That's yeah, good company being for sure. The other coaching I kind of talked about was Willie Fritz. He's doing a great job at Tulane. I think that's kind of surprising us, which we'll get to in a little bit here. But yeah, with what Scott Frost is doing at UCF, I think we both expected him to bring this team to be a contender after the season they had this year, but I don't think either one of us expected any of this to be happening on either side of the ball. Yeah, you just brought up Willie Fritz, so we can just dive into what's the next topic at hand here, and that is our surprise team for the conference. And we both said it beforehand. You know, you could argue that it's UCF just because of everything we just said, but at the same time, we both knew that UCF would be legitimately the only team that would contend with USF, probably on the east side. And and now, you know, we've been talking about them, obviously, as being maybe the best team in the conference. So that's why we're going to go with Tulane with this honor, just because, I mean, I honestly thought that maybe Tulane at best might get four, maybe five wins. But now I can totally see them making a bowl game. You mentioned Willie Fritz. It's got a lot to do with him. Jonathan Banks and Jonathan Brantley have really run their option very, very well. Dontrell Hillard is having a great year as well. And even defensively, you know, we've seen a lot better from them. And then that beatdown that they put on Tulsa was just one that I think shocked us both. Yeah, that game was definitely the statement game so far. And Going into the season, like you mentioned, I think we both agreed going in that four or five wins was the ceiling for this team, and it all depended on quarterback play and how the offense was going to do. Obviously, we'll get into that a little bit later here, but the fact that they are in contention in the West right now shows how much this team has improved. Uh, we knew the defense was going to be good this year, but we saw what the offense did last year, and it wasn't anything spectacular, but with the improved quarterback play, it's, it's a big reason why this team is right where they are. Yeah, and it's been a phenomenal year for them, just in a sense, I mean, 
they're winning games and LSU is not doing too well this year. They've got all kinds of controversies. So, I mean, I'm not going to say they're the best team in Louisiana or anything like that, but it's just one of those things that we wanted before the season. We wanted some of these bottom teams and they were one of them. You know, the other two teams, ECU and UConn, we kind of knew that they would be pretty bad this year, but we didn't know what to expect from Tulane and they've definitely performed a lot better than we expected. Um, they're three and two now. Pretty good chance probably to go four and two this week. But diving into the team that we think is the most disappointing, again, unanimous pick for us both. I kind of just brought off how Tulane just beat beat them down not too long ago, and that is Tulsa, one and five, the second worst defense in the country. And just to dive into that note a little bit, the AAC unfortunately has the last three teams when it comes to total defense, which is kind of shocking if, if you want to really do this power six movement that I keep talking about. But tell me what you have seen from Tulsa. I mean, obviously it's been miserable to watch that defense, which is surprising considering they're a run first team and somehow they're still so terrible on defense. Yeah. How are they so bad? I mean, we knew the defense was going to be average going into the year. And we expected them to make a little bit of improvement, but this is just, I don't, I don't really know what to, what to say. And even on the offensive side of the ball, D'Angelo Brewer has been what we expected, but that's pretty much it. I mean, the offensive line is opening holes for him to run through, but Chad President hasn't done much for the team. There hasn't been really a receiver that's been spectacular for them. And you mentioned the defense. It's it's been super super porous and I don't know what's going on there. I guess the one good thing that Tulsa fans can be happy about is that Philip Montgomery is not going anywhere because of this year. Um, it means that he also has plenty of work to do to get this program back on track after this year. But a one in five start is not anything I think anybody expected from this team. What shocks me more about this, you know, because I kind of just mentioned it, was this is a run-first team, and a lot of games, they're still losing the time of possession battle, and they're running the ball. I mean, there was the one game where they had every touch, I think it was six or seven touchdowns. They were all on the ground. You know, it's not like Chad President is out there airing it out. They milk clock, and somehow they still allow these opposing defense to get out there and just kill them, keep them on the field for so long. So I... It just, to me, it's one of those things that don't make sense. Usually when you hear about teams that are run first, you know, it's run first, play strong D. We're not seeing that from Tulsa whatsoever. It's been anything but that. I think we said before the season started that we thought maybe this would be a sleeper team. It's hasn't been anything close to that. It's been actually kind of disappointing to watch because like you mentioned, we thought Montgomery might have been one of those coaches that could have been on the move. Yeah, and I, I thought going into the year that they weren't, they, I mean, I, I knew they were gonna struggle because they had so much turnover on both sides of the ball and you don't just go and win the conference with all that turnover, but I think that's what made them a sleeper team is that there's a lot of unknowns with them and unfortunately for them it's going the wrong way. You mentioned the surprise of not being good against the run. I mean, they're almost giving up 350 yards per game on the ground. Like, 
I don't even know how that's possible when your offense runs as much as they do. Like, you should be seeing that in practice every single day, every single week, and for whatever reason, they just can't figure things out. Giving up 44 points a game, I mean, you're not, you're just, you're not gonna win football games if you're giving up that many points and you can't stop the run. And I think what's even more disappointing about this whole trend with them is they faced option teams three weeks in a row and it got worse. Like you were expected to get better, but it got worse every week. I mean, they gave up more and more points every week. I just, I mean, a good friend of mine, we talked about this, you know, he was arguing this all along. He literally was telling me, he was like, by this third game, they've got to be better. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. And then we saw how that game turned out and it was god awful. Like that was probably the worst defensive performance you're going to see all season long. I mean, ECU is, is right now is ranked as the dead last team, but from what I've seen, Tulsa is by far the worst defense I've seen just because of what is on the other side of the ball that is actually pretty solid. Well, let's not beat up on Tulsa's defense too much because we can just keep going about how just, it literally just blows my mind how bad they have been. So let's go on a little bit on the positive side. Now, give me who you have for your surprise player of the year so far in the AAC. I kind of have a combination here. I have, I have Tillian's quarterbacks, Jonathan Banks and Jonathan Brantley. Now, why do I have two is because Banks has gotten hurt and Brantley has taken over and you can't ignore what he did in Banks' absence. And they don't, the thing with them is they don't put up stats that blow you away and they're not going to be in the box score where you look and you say you're, you literally, your eye opens even more because you see what they're doing. But if you looked at what Tulane's offense was last year and you see what they're doing this year, you would know how big of an impact quarterback play has been. The offense is night and day from last year and it's because of these two. Now Banks has been the starter when he's healthy for most of the year, but when he did get hurt, Brantley took over and it's almost as if the offense didn't even skip a beat. So that's why I have them. They don't, they don't have the greatest stats, but if you pay attention to this team, you'll understand how big of an impact that these two have had this season. Yeah. They've gone back and forth because of the injuries. It's been one of those things where, you know, I would personally like to see Banks get all of the reps, but I understand why it hasn't happened because of the injuries. But you mentioned how well that it's turned around Tulane's season. You know, we talked about how we feel like Tulane is a surprise team. But another team that we can argue that was a surprise team, and that's why I'm going to go with this guy as a surprise player, and I'm going with Zach Abbey from Navy. I mean, going into the year, we didn't know what to expect from him, honestly. We weren't sure because of what we saw in those last two games last year in the in the championship game against Temple and then in the loss against Army. You know, he was kind of thrown in the fires and you know, to his to his credit, you know, that was the reason why he looked so bad. I mean, going into the year they knew that he was gonna be a backup. This year, going into the offseason, he knew it was his job, he was gonna run away with it. And he has turned out to be and granted the offense that they run helps them out, obviously, but he's averaging 179 yards per game, which is the best 
total all-purpose in the entire conference. Again, I understand just because of the way the offense works, you know, he they run in pass. I think what is like a little thing that kind of threw me off was I knew about the rushing stats, and granted, it's 16 for 40, so he's obviously under 50%, which is, I guess, bad. But the 471 yards and five TDs through the air, I I can't remember Keenan Reynolds throwing the ball, you know, a ton like that. Granted, I'm going to be honest, I didn't watch a ton of Navy games back then. But I just feel like that Abby does give opposing defenses a little bit of a scare on through the air as well. So that's kind of why I went with him there. And we can't argue that Navy's 5-0 start. Uh, nobody saw it coming. We talked earlier how some people feel like maybe they should be higher in at least the uh, our power rankings. Uh, they did make it in the top 25 for the AP rankings or the coaches' rankings, which is you can never you know talk bad about. But now let's go into who players who we think have been the biggest disappointments for this year. And I'm going to let you go into it first because we both kind of went with the teams that we cover most. Yeah, and mine is definitely Kyle Allen so far. I think he was split 50-50 between people who thought he was going to be good and people who thought he was going to struggle. And I was one of those who thought he would struggle right away, but he has the talent to, to be good and... He's been overall disappointing so far. He has just seven, 751 yards passing. He is completing 76% of his passes, but that has more to do with the 31 for 33 game he had against Rice. And if you watch the games, it's just like the intangibles where he's never quite comfortable in the pocket. It seems like he's staring down receivers and that's when he gets in trouble and throws picks. So I think... Houston's offense has struggled because of inconsistent quarterback play. Now, Kyle Postma has been inconsistent as well, so quarterback overall for them has been definitely a disappointment, but I think with all of the attention that Allen got coming into this year, that's why he gets this position. Can't argue with anything you said there. I think, I can't remember if it was you or I, but I know one of us picked... Allen to be the newcomer of the, of the comp, you know, the win newcomer player of the year for the conference. And doesn't look like that's going to happen if it, it's, I mean, you mentioned it. We don't know who's going to, we don't even know who's going to be the quarterback next week. Could it be Allen? Could it be Postman? We have no clue how that situation is going to play out going into the rest of the year. Um, but I, like I said, I went close to home with me. I'm going to go with, with Raquel Armstead. This was a guy who going into the year, I thought, would be the foundation of Temple's offense. And it's been anything but uh, through all these games. He's got 77 carries for 216 yards. And I think the most depressing stat is the zero touchdowns. I don't think we could have saw that coming. Temple is somehow 3-3 three and three without him scoring a touchdown this year. He took some time off last week against ECU. He didn't play because of what they were calling an injury. Only carried the ball, you know, four times for three yards. I think that was more because of the opponent. They figured, hey, and I mean, I hate to bat. Well, I've been bashing on ECU all season long, so I'll just continue to do it. It was ECU. There was no reason for him to have to play in that game. They were going to win regardless. But it's been one of those things. He has, he's yet to have a 100-yard game. 
And this is a guy who I honestly thought would might average 150 yards per game just because of how much he was used last year. And this year he's been, he's been banged up. And that's part of the reason why I didn't play against CCU, to be honest. But he had an impressive showing against UMass and, but still didn't top 100 yards. Three yards against UCF, three yards against ECU. And both of those times he's got enough carries to go over three yards. This is a guy who I thought was probably a premier back in his conference, but he has been anything but so far. So that's my guy, Reichwell Armstead. Sorry, you've been the disappointing player of the year so far. But now let's get into some actual action coming up this weekend. It's been a while since we've actually got to talk about some games, so let's get into that. We just mentioned Temple, so we'll dive into them. They are actually the first game on Saturday. Every game's on Saturday this week, which is great. Makes my life a lot easier. It is the Yukon Huskies travel in the Temple. That game's at 12 p.m. on ESPN News. Temple, a 10-point favorite. Honestly, 10 points is a perfect number because I don't trust Temple's offense still, but, I mean, UConn has just been so terrible this year. I don't even know what to expect from them going into any game. The concerning thing with UConn is last year was the offense struggled and the defense carried the team, and this year it's been a complete 180 from that. The Huskies' defense is allowing 399, well, might as well just round it up, 400 yards passing per game. It's like 400 that's an average. And it had, if a quarterback has a 400 yard passing game, you think, okay, that was, he had a great, great night, great afternoon, whatever. But they're averaging 400 points passing against their defense, which is 80 more than the next highest team. It's, that's just an insane number. And now Temple's not exactly a passing team, but I think, they can definitely benefit from UConn's struggles. They have to prove that they can stop UConn's offense now, so I'm not sure how well that's going to go, but I agree with you that 10 points is the perfect amount, and I'm just really surprised with where UConn is at at this point, and I guess that's that's why they're ranked last in our power rankings. Yeah, and I don't think we expected them ever to get out of the basement of our power rankings, but we definitely expected better things from their defense. I, I, you know, we thought that this entire time that the offense was going to be the question for them, and they're just getting blown out of every game. Um, I kind of mentioned that in those power rankings that maybe Randy Etzel wishes that he took a year off just because of how things have been there. But and on the flip side, you mentioned Temple. We still don't know what kind of offense they're running. Are they a run-first offense? They're I guess they kind of have to be just because of the fact you can't rely on Logan Marchie to, to really consistently run this offense just because I mean, he's almost got just as many interceptions as touchdowns. Very been very consistent. I feel like now, and it's been kind of depressing me as an alumni to watch. I feel like he's been on SC's not top 10 two weeks in a row now. It's just kind of hard to see just because the, and I wanted to say this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, like I said earlier, we've kind of been off the air. I feel like these past couple weeks, which have not gone according to plan, has made Temple all of a sudden, and especially that game against USF, has made Temple look like they're back to being the 
the team that they were about 10 years ago when they were just a laughing stock of college football and everybody just beat up on them all the time. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. I think we do have issues. Obviously, I think quarterback play is a big issue. I'm one of those, and I'm still kind of waiting to see. Maybe I would like to see the freshman get a shot, and that's because when I was at the spring game, he's the one that impressed me most. I'm not there every day, obviously, but that's the one that impressed me most. So maybe eventually they make that switch. But I would love to see eventually Temple give the kid a shot just because, like I said, I don't know what offense to expect from them every week. But in the other game, the next game that's on the slate on Saturday, these are two offenses that we can kind of know what we're going to expect from. And this should be a fun game to watch just because it's two conflicting offenses as well. And that is number 25, Navy, at 5-0, going against Memphis, 4-1 team. That game's at 345. It's on ESPNU. And I think this is the telling part, and I understand Memphis is the home team, but Memphis is a three-and-a-half-point favorite. And I think the half actually tells a lot just because usually if it's a three-point favorite at home, it's just because of the fact that it's a home team. But I think the half point tells a lot just because of more of the fact that they think that probably Memphis has the better offense. And I think we both can agree on that. If, God forbid, this gets in a shootout, Memphis can score points in a hurry as opposed to Navy needs to grind the grind the clock to the way they run their offense with their option. Yeah, Navy can score a lot of points, but they need their defense to play well, and they have the defense to do it. Memphis has been struggling defensively all year, but that has more to do with a ton of injuries on that side of the ball and lots of youth playing. Now, here's the thing with Navy. They haven't really played anybody. Not to be rude to like Tulane or Cincinnati, but it, it seems that they're 5-0 and because their schedule has allowed them to be 5-0, and and I think that, well, for sure this game and next week against UCF, we're going to find out if this team's an actual contender. And if you are a contender in this conference, you should be able to pull away from the lower teams and against Tulane, who's seventh in our power rankings, Navy only won by two. Against Cincinnati, who's eighth, they only won by ten. Against Tulsa, who we just, it pretty much just destroyed, they only won by ten. Now I know that we said that Navy's offense is built to blow teams out of the water, but you should be able to beat Tulsa by ten. I mean, Tulane just beat Tulsa by thirty-four. They run fairly similar offense. I don't know how you can be a contender and you can't pull away from one of the worst teams in the conference. So I'm still not sold on them, which is why they're fourth, right behind a one-loss Houston team in our power rankings. But this will be this will pretty much give, our, give us our answers. We know that Memphis can score a ton of points. Riley Ferguson, Anthony Miller, Daryl Henderson, we all mentioned before, Tony Pollard. Like We know the names that Memphis has, but can Navy make those stops, and can they score enough points on the road to compete with this Memphis team? Abby's going to have to throw the ball more this this game. That's, there's not even a question about that, and his low completion percentage already is a concern. So I think not only will we figure out who Navy is, but we'll also see 
is Zach Abbey for real in this game, or is is our doubt justified? Yeah, we just watched Memphis put up, what was it, 70 points against UConn. I don't see how, I mean, if Riley Ferguson is slinging it like he did last week, I mean, you just kind of said it, that Abby's going to have to throw the ball. You can't, just because, of, I mean, just time alone, just because, you know, there are two conflicting offenses. One needs so much time to score, but then the other one, I mean, can literally score on two, three plays. So it's going to be one of those things where really we're just, it's going to come down to the defensive play. You know, I mean, I feel like we talk about that every week, and you can talk about that in every game just based on how offenses are. But we've also seen Memphis's defense be pretty bad. And I understand it's against a UCF team that has really overperformed probably going so far this year. But I just don't know if, you know, I think Navy could grind this out I'm not gonna. I I don't want to say that I think they're gonna win this game, and I'm just trying to put it out there that if if there was a way for them to do so, it's one of those things where they have to play their offense. Don't get caught up into what Memphis does, even if they get down. Say say they get down fourteen nothing early. Do what you do. Grind the clock out. Run your offense the right way, and then put the pressure because at the same time, if you're a pass first offense, you have the possibility of going three and out. Because of the fact you know that I mean, what's so hard about Navy is they go for it a lot on fourth down when it's, when it's fourth and one, fourth and two. And a lot of times you know they're going to make it just because a one yard, two yards for the, the way that offense works is nothing. Yeah, for sure. And it, like you said, whoever dictates the style of play is going to win the game. If it's high tempo and Lots of passing. Memphis is going to run away with it. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Navy doesn't have nearly the firepower to keep up in a shootout. But if it's, you know, meticulous, grind it out, and just chew up the clock, then Navy's probably going to win because Memphis isn't going to have an answer on defense. Yeah, and that game actually, now that I'm looking at it, that game actually has some implications for for the AAC West. I think we both agreed that we thought Memphis would be the team to come out of that side. But if Navy actually pulls this off, I mean, they they actually might be the front runner to win it just because, uh, I mean, that, that loss against maybe USF next week could be damaging, but just because on their side of the conference, so far they've jumped out of such a, to a nice lead. But let's dive into uh, the other game that's in mid-afternoon, and that is Houston, who's 4-1, and one, and they're taking on Tulsa. At one and five, the games at ESPN News at 4 p.m. Houston is a 13 and a half point favorite on the road. Uh, I think that's got obviously a lot to do with how bad Tulsa's defense has been. Houston covering basically two touchdowns. What do you think of that? If you told me that at the beginning of the year, I would be stunned simply because we expected Tulsa to be better. But with how bad Tulsa's been defensively, it seems about right. I always feel double-digit favorites on the road. It's it's kind of a tricky situation to bet on. But Tulsa's, like you said, their defense has been so bad. And as we discussed, it's just been a difficult year for them. And, I mean, last year, Houston needed a goal line stand to win the game, and that was when 
Houston was still doing really well in 2016, and now Houston's not. Their offense has been struggling because of quarterback play. Tulsa's bad at running the ball, but Houston, or stopping the run, excuse me, but Houston hasn't excelled at running the ball, so that might be a good thing for the home team going into this game, but there's too much talent on Houston's side that just can't be ignored, and I think with the struggles that Tulsa's having, that there's the 13.5 is just, I think it's a good number, even though I don't ever like looking at a road team being up by double digits, almost two touchdowns there. I think it'll be a blowout just because Tulsa's been so bad. I really just hope that Houston's able to figure out things offensively. You just honestly mentioned what I was going to say here. I feel like this is a game for who, whoever is the guy for Houston, they're going to help themselves a little bit at quarterback just because, I mean, they're going to have all all the time in the world to just have at this defense, whether it's Allen, whether it's Postman, whoever it is. They're going to have their way with this defense. They could probably do a good job of solidifying what they do now unless, I mean, obviously – Maybe Tulsa shocks us all out of nowhere and all of a sudden they decide to play some defense. But I, I highly doubt that. That 14.5 number you kind of said is perfect. I can honestly see it literally 14 points. Literally, I honestly could see a 20, I want to say a 24 to 10 game just to be, ah, 24 to 10 might be a little bit low. But, you know, something like it knows in that regard is just because Tulsa's defense is just not that good, but we still don't know what to make out of Houston's offense because we don't know what to make out of the quarterback play. Well, let's keep moving forward. And the next game that is on Saturday, and it's the only out-of-conference game this week, and that is Tulane, who's at 3-2. and two, And they will travel to Florida International, who is a surprising 3-2 and two also. I was actually, when I saw that they were 3-2, and two, that kind of surprised me a lot, to be honest. That game's at 7 p.m., not on national TV. Um, could be almost positive it's on local TV, but from what I saw, it's not on national TV. Tulane's a 14-point favorite on the road. I personally feel like any option team, 14 points, that's a lot, thinking betting-wise. Yeah, for sure, and FIU is better than the beginning of the season, they played UCF and they got blown out right away. So I think it'll be a good test to see how far both teams have come and how Tulane does will kind of determine where they fit in the conference, and especially now that we're halfway. But yeah, that's that's uh, again, it's a it's a big number, and I don't like the road teams being favored by so much. But if FIU hasn't improved at all, and they're just as bad as they were in Week One then you can expect another 60-point game from Tulane, which is crazy to think after the season that they had last year where they struggled to score points, and now we're talking about two potential 60-point games in a row. Yeah, I mean, 14 points for a Tulane coming in this year. I would have, honestly, probably would have laughed at anybody would have told me that just because of what we saw in years prior. It just They were never an offense that you thought could actually possibly do that, but... That's, again, another perfect number, I feel like. And you mentioned it. It's two offenses that, you know, Tulane's is on the rise. So is FIU's. You kind of said how we, we, you know, I was thinking back to that UCF game where they got blown out. But then, like I said earlier, UCF is blowing out everybody, which is great for them. And that's what they should be doing. 
to dive into there. The next team on the docket and number 22, they're bringing in East Carolina at one and five. That game can be seen on the CBS Sports Network at 7 p.m. The line for that is 34 and a half. And I think that's a perfect number. Actually, I think it might be, I, I think that actually might be a little bit too low just because how we have seen UCF blowout teams and the way ECU has been blown out this year. 30, wow. 34 is, that's insane. But yeah, like you said, it's, that might be the right number, which, which is, Anytime you're talking about 34 points, that's, and you're agreeing that that's the correct number is scary. ECU's defense, which, like we talked about earlier, is, it's kind of the trend in this conference is the defense is not good and that's what gets them into trouble. And they've had two different weeks. The last two weeks, two weeks ago, they tried to win a shootout with USF and for the first half it worked, but then they pulled, USF pulled away in the end. And last week, I don't even know if the offense even showed up because they only had 10 points and 287 total yards. So I guess you don't really know which offense or defense you're going to get. So this really concerns me simply because when you look at that USF game, you have a Bulls team that's been starting slow and there have been some inconsistencies and questions on the offensive side of the ball. And they still put up 61 points. And now ECU is going on the road to face arguably the best team in the conference in an offense that's so far been unstoppable. 34 points, like you said, might actually be too low. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Knights score 70-plus and keep ECU to below 10. Hopefully they surprise us here, but I don't I don't see how anything under 34 is remotely possible at this point. Now, you kind of made my argument for something I wanted to bring up before we dive into the next game. You brought up just how ECU hung on to a little bit with USF in the first half and then got blown out of the waters and how you feel how UCF is just going to absolutely dismantle them. So, with that said, are we obviously, because we this is the conference that we follow only, we have UCF as the number one team in our power rankings. And granted, they have played one less game than USF, but do you feel like I do that they should be the higher-ranked team just because of how they have performed so far this year? I feel like the the four wins that UCF has are by far, and not just because of who they've played, but just how they've played them all, that by far they should be the higher-ranked team coming out of the AAC right now. Yeah, I think with the rankings, it's... it's sorry, this is just, I understand. It's one of those things where UCF was ranked coming in the year. They just won't let them... They or, Excuse me, USF was ranked coming in this year. But by this point, I feel like UCF should have just jumped over them just based on play. I understand why they are, but it's just because, you know, coming in the year, I feel like if you started in there, they're not going to let you get jumped, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I don't. I don't get... I understand people don't want to be wrong about their preseason rankings, but like it's okay. It's okay just because a team hasn't played well doesn't mean, or just because a team's played well doesn't mean they don't deserve to jump a team that was you know it's undefeated. And I mean, I don't see how how can you argue that USF 
is better? Like, tell me one team that they've played where you looked at them and you said, okay, yep, that looked good. I mean, they started the year with San Jose State, 42-22, where they started slow. Not not anything impressive. They put up 42 points, great. Stony Brook the next week, they were losing at halftime, the 131-17. to That's not impressive. Beat Illinois, who everybody's been talking about, not even a great Power 5 team. Power 5 win, put up 47 points, but they gave up 23. Not any impressive. Then you go to Temple and ECU, like the bottom feeders of the conference right now. Well, don't go that far. It's, well, yeah, you know, that's true. I shouldn't put ECU and Temple in the same sentence, but you know what I mean. Just, it's, it's not too impressive. And then you look at US, or UCF. I mean, the FIU win it's beating FIU is not anything to, you know, get too excited about, but they put up 61 points, gave up 17. Then after being off for two weeks, they go and put up 38 points on Maryland and give up 10. That to me is way more impressive than any of the games that USF has played so far. And then to follow that up with a 40 to 13 dismantling of Memphis, I mean, those two games alone, are better than USF five wins. So I don't see I don't I just don't understand it. I don't understand how they're not ranked higher. It it makes no sense to me because USF hasn't been playing very well and I think the only reason why they're there is because they were there to begin the season and for whatever reason people don't wanna make that jump yet. I I love the passion in your voice because everything you said is literally everything I would have said too. Those last two games, I feel like they've definitely proved that they are by far the best team in the conference. I mean, coming on the road to Maryland, 38 to 10. And we're talking, I mean, I understand Maryland is not Ohio State, Michigan. They're still a Big Ten team. You know, these are these are the teams that if we really want to talk about this conference being a power six, they got to go in there and win. If UCF is going to be the best, you know, and that's what we expect, they should be one of the better teams than the AAC. So when they go on the road to play, maybe not even on the road, but when they go to play teams that are like on the bottom parts of other conferences, they should win. But it's one thing when you win. It's another thing. When, I mean, you go in there and you win by four touchdowns. I mean, that is very impressive. And then you mentioned that Memphis game. That's the team we expected to probably, we, it probably should have been, it ended up 40 to 13, but I think we can both agree going into the week, it was probably thought it should have been 40 to 38 or something like that, like a real shootout. It was anything but that. UCF's defense really showed us that they can actually shut down a very good offense as well. And they showed us the week before that against Maryland too. So that is what I think is the one thing that's been, hasn't been really been talked about is how well that defense has been. And before the season's over, we've, we've talked about this since week one, actually probably before the season started, that that last game of the year is, it's USF, UCF. And I hope this is something that they keep around. Like I hope they make this like a staple that they play each other the last game of the year every year, because that's going to be a very exciting game. Obviously it's going to decide the AAC East, but that's going to be a very exciting game. But we've completely gone off track. We went on the, which is a good thing. We should talk about how good that UCF has been. But let's dive into that last game of the week. And that is Cincinnati, two and four, going against what we've just argued, 
number 18, USF, who's 5 and 0. That game's at 7:30 on ESPNU. USF is a 24 and a half point favorite. Now, just how I said earlier, 34 and a half is not enough points for UCF. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Cincinnati's defense is better than giving up 24 and a half points, even if they are on the road. Yeah, and it's, you know, to, not to rehash our tangent that we just went on, but like, if, if USF wins by 34 points, then I'll, I might be impressed. Like, start winning games how you're supposed to win them and do it in dominant fashion instead of taking forever to get going and then pulling away at the end. Like, then we'll talk about it. But I think in this case, 34 points with what I've seen so far is too much. Now they're probably going to win by 40 points and whatever. Just put it back in my face. But it, it's just, I don't know, it's, you know. We didn't even talk about San Diego State either, who deserves to be over USF, but right now it's just Cincinnati is, you said, 2-4, and four, but I think it's a little bit deceiving with how they've played so far. The one thing that, or two players that we talked about going in this year who needed to play well for this team to have success were Hayden Moore and Mike Boone. Moore hasn't been great. He's shown flashes of his potential. But hasn't been great, and Mike Boone's pretty much all been been all but non-existent in the offense. And this is not a team that you can, you know, try to play catch up with or try to win a shootout with in USF. Uh, they have, they do have the talent. Now, USF's not a bad team. I don't want people to think, oh, he's just he's just bashing USF because they're not winning the right way. This is still a very dangerous offense. And they have the potential to do it. But like you said, 34 points might be a little bit high just because you don't know what kind of Cincinnati team you're going to get. Yeah, and I, just to bring it back, because like you just mentioned the San Diego State team, and that's a team who I also agree should by far be ranked ahead of USF. Just to give some credit to our guys at site, we actually have them ranked in our underdog teams, which we consider the G5 teams. They are number one in our poll, which I think I think we both agree is the right way to be. And then it should be UCF after that. And you just mentioned it. It's, we're not saying that USF is not a good team, but we expect better out of them. I mean, we talked about going into this year as Quentin Flowers being a Heisman candidate because we thought potentially he might put up numbers similar to what Lamar Jackson did last year. Hasn't been anything but. We thought that... Okay, yeah, they've won every game, but we thought they were going to blow out every team. It's been anything but. I mean, anything but is just being an understatement because a couple of those games going on at halftime, you thought, hey, they might not lose. And these were against, you just mentioned the team, San Diego or San Jose State, Stony Brook. I mean, they were losing at halftime. And things that we are just, we never thought were going to happen going into this year. We were talking about going into this year. Hey, maybe USF could be that group of five team that represents the playoff. No shot of happening to that now. Actually, we're going to argue that it's the two teams I just mentioned before. It's going to be San Diego State and UCF. But to fling it on the other side, you mentioned you mentioned Moore and you mentioned Boone. We have Cincinnati ranked where they're at right now, and I got to pull it back up just because I went to the other page to see where where those rankings were. Hold on, let me pull this up real quick. At number eight, which I feel like 
No, I, I honestly expected them to be a little bit better. I thought they would be a little bit better offensively than they have been so far going into this year. Yeah, and you mentioned the debate about are they going to be the team that represents the group of five and in the New Year's Bowl, and I said from the beginning that it's so hard for a team to go from start to finish and be that team, and what do you know, we're we're seeing it right before our eyes. Like, it's just, it's hard. You have all that pressure, and people expect you to play at a certain level, and most of the time the teams just can't handle that pressure, and it's the teams that don't have as much pressure that come in and you look at the two teams that we mentioned UCF we expected them to be maybe eight and four and we see now that that might have been a little bit too low in terms of number of wins San Diego State lost a few starters on both sides of the ball and expectations were lower compared to last year and now they're exceeding expectations once again and USF's at the top and they're just struggling because the expectations for them not only to win but how they win are just so high and it just seems like right now they can't handle that yeah that's kind of sad that's that's the thing about this conference that's going to be hard to kind of digest just because if it was and i don't want to say alabama just because they but let's say if it was just to pick a random power five team off the top of my head um missouri comes through and pulls off the season that USF is having right now. We're talking about the, you know, not just not just us, but I'm saying nationally. They're talking about oh, Missouri is one of the, you know, one of the greatest teams in the country. USF doesn't get the benefit of the doubt just because of their conferences. Same thing with UCF. I think that kind of shows just with the way they're ranked. None of them are in the top, excuse me. I guess USF is in the top 20. But it was, you know, We've argued just now the better teams is UCF, and they're still at number 22. They have by far the better wins, and they're still not getting the respect. And you said it earlier; it's because people who preseason rank these guys, they don't want to, they don't want to hurt themselves. Should definitely be by far, I think, UCF a bet ahead of USF. Hopefully, they get their minds right and do that right. Um, before we get off of here, we talked about this a little bit off air, and this is something that we want to do in the next coming days. We talked about how it's the midway point. I want to go through some of the guys that we feel like at this point are conference players of the year, and I guess we'll just call it mid-season conference players of the year because obviously we'll do this, or excuse me, all conference teams is what I meant to say. So, Let's dive through some of these things because I know we kind of talked about this off the air and we can close this out a lot easier with this instead of just, I mean, somehow we just bash USF. So I feel like it's our due diligence to, uh, to talk some good news about them a little bit. So as far as all conference players, I think we're in agreement that it's most things are first team, second team, but with this conference, it's going to be hard to pick between the three that we've already talked about, and then it's Mackenzie Milton, Riley Ferguson, and Quentin Flowers. Yeah, and it's it, we're going to find out a lot in the next month or so. Right now, Milton's stats are lower because he's played less games. 
Ferguson had one bad game, so I guess that's his only knock. And really, Flowers has played well, which with USF struggles so far, he's kind of flown under the radar, which is weird to think considering he came in with all that hype of Heisman talks and all that, all that going in. So yeah, like you said, it's going to be difficult to pick between those three. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to argue, I mean, trying to pick an order for him right now. Just to say who's first team, who's second team. I mean, I went with Milton first team just because obviously we just talked about him being my offensive player of the year, so he's got to be that guy. And I went with Ferguson at two just because the same argument I made earlier. He throws six, seven touchdowns this week. You can say he's the number one guy. And like you just said, Flowers flying under the radar. Still probably by far the best quarterback in this conference. But just because of competition, we haven't seen it necessarily that way. So I, by season's end, hopefully, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to see all three of these guys continue to play very, very well, represent the conference well. But by season's end, I think we'll feel like we'll find out which guy is the number one guy just because I don't know if you're on the same boat as me, but I don't know how long this UCF bubble is going to be. But that'll be a topic for maybe the weeks to come. Let's just keep – I want to keep going through some of these because now we actually are running a little bit long. I have four guys for running back in the conference. Tell me if you agree. The guys I have are D'Angelo Brewer, which might be the only Bryce set for Tulsa considering how he's just pounding the rock. Um, Dontrell Hillard. And then I have Henderson, who we mentioned earlier, and Xavier Jones from SMU who is a guy coming in this year I don't think we talked about at all. Yeah, because they have such a crowded backfield. I think that's one thing that is preventing him from getting it's so much recognition. We talked about Braden West being the guy for that team, and then they have mm-hmm. Kimon Freeman as well, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, I can't really, I mean, other than that, I can't really argue against either of those four guys. Now, the one position I think that this conference is really blessed with is a wide receiver. And there's there's a couple guys that you know, we honestly probably didn't mention coming in this year, and that's, that might be more benefit of the system that they're running as the reason why they're up there. I think we can agree. One and two, no argument. Cortland Sutton, Anthony Miller, the two of them. I mean, Sutton is by far the better player, but Miller has got the better stats right now. So if you want to go based on stats, it's Miller. But then I'm going to say after that, and I think uh, Trey Quinn, also from SMU, has been a real beneficiary of just how teams are covering Sutton. But then Ben Hicks is just throwing a ball all over the place. I love SMU. And actually, you know what? We haven't talked about SMU at all on the show, and that's one of those things we probably should just because they have been a lot more impressive I don't want to say a lot more impressive because we knew we were going to, you know, we knew they were going to be able to throw the ball around a lot this year. But they're a team that we, we didn't talk about a lot in the show, so let's uh, give them a little bit of love just because that offense is great. And what Chad Morris has done down there is phenomenal. Uh, we haven't talked even, I don't think we've talked since that TCU game, which they actually, you know, they held their own for a while. Yeah, I think Sutton might not get the nod simply because he's kind of got the Ed Oliver thing going for him right now. Teams focus their attention towards him and I mean, he had those two weeks where, 
against TCU, he had one catch for zero yards, and then the next week he had only 32 yards receiving. So while that has something to do with it, I think that's what's going to hurt him in terms of postseason awards. And like you mentioned, Quinn's getting the benefit of that. He's the leading receiver in the conference right now. And then one guy who's not getting enough recognition because of the team he's on is Devon Grayson from ECU. He's had a couple weeks where have really boosted his stats, but it's nice to see that they've had some sort of spark after the year that they started out with. I think with these postseason awards, it's all about stats and and unfortunately for people like Sutton and Ed Oliver, that's just kind of the, the case that they're not going to get recognized because of the defense or offenses, the opposing team's attention to them. SMU has been phenomenal offensively. Hicks is, I mean, it, we mentioned the three quarterbacks before, but Hicks could be a fourth person in that running as well, just with how good that offense is. One receiver that I think people should keep an eye out for is Traquan Smith from UCF. This dude is blazing fast, and his stats are not as high as everyone else's because, once again, same thing as Milton. He has less games. But UCF and SMU in throwing Memphis, if you told me I had to watch those three offenses the rest of the season, I would be more than entertained. So it's funny because you brought up the next I, I mentioned the first three names in Sutton, Miller, and Quinn. The next two names on my list were the two guys you just brought up was Devon Grayson and Traquan Smith. I mean, we knew somebody for ECU was going to have to step up and take Zay Jones's role, and it's obviously when Grayson has done that for them. You mentioned Smith. That guy's a freak. Like he He's fun to watch. He's really fun to watch. Two other guys that I have listed just because I mean, wide receiver, you mentioned, it's one of those things. Whoever catches the most passes, because my argument for, you know, you can make the argument for Smith, half of his receptions are touchdown grabs. But that's because he, it feels like everyone that he grabs is he takes it to the house. Don't get me wrong, but he's, I think if I remember the stats right, he's got 15, 15 receptions, seven of them are touchdowns. That's just ridiculous. But then the other two guys I have listed are Khalil Lewis from Cincinnati and then Lanelle Bonner from Houston. Again, these are two guys that I feel like we talked about going into this year that, that we thought would be good. Tight end, I have, and he has a great name. That's Joey Magnifico from Memphis. And then after that, I don't see, I mean, I have Jordan Atkins down just because that's the guy we had going in the year. But other than that, not seeing a whole lot of love from tight ends in this conference. Yeah, and I think with this spread looks that teams have or even, I mean, like if, when Navy used tight ends, they don't really pass to them, so I think with that triple option look, the tight ends aren't really out there to catch passes and if they do, they're not going to get a ton of receptions, so I think I mean, going into the season, we thought there were only going to be two tight ends to watch out for and it might be the case that there's only two or three at the end of the year that we have to pay attention to. Yep, and I mean, Atkins I just mentioned, Magnifico is the other one. Those are probably going to be the two biggest names in the conference, at least statistically. I'm going to be honest, like we both said going into the show, I don't have anybody for the offensive line because, I, to be honest, a lot of these offensive lines, I don't know what to make of them. 
just because I guess that's also kind of a predicate of a lot of the schemes that we have in this conference. We've got so many crazy, you know, most of them are spread schemes and then you got those option schemes. So you really don't know how to make with them. So we'll try our best to do those when we get towards the end of the season. And I feel like that'll help us out. We can figure some things out just because let's be honest, who really watches offensive linemen? I'm not trying to be rude if you've ever been an offensive lineman or you're into that kind of stuff, but. Uh, I, when I watch a game, I think we both can agree that we watch the playmakers on both sides of the ball. We don't pay attention to the offensive linemen. Yeah, it's true. I think I think Jared might be a little upset with you. Yeah, I know. That's all right. Sorry, Jared. I'm very sorry that I'm not sorry. We'll do that. And we'll do that later in the year. Um, so let's go on the other side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of mentioned it. I don't have a huge list. For guys on even on the defensive side of the ball, but I mentioned a little bit earlier about Justin Lawler, who I feel is a guy who definitely should get, if not defensive player of the year recognition, you know, will definitely make the all conference team just just based on stats alone. Uh, just to throw out three other names I have on the line. One is Luke Johnson, and then I got two guys from Temple who, granted, I guess you can just kind of say because I'm alum because I see them most, but they also are up there statistically, and that's Jacob Martin and Quincy Roach. Yeah, I like all those guys. Uh, Lawler's obviously a good, great pick. I think Ed Oliver just deserves to be in the conversation by reputation alone, and if you – he just – with how he plays, he just deserves to be in the first team, and it's it'd be just comical to leave him out. But yeah, there's been. I didn't leave him out. I just wanted you. Yeah, right. No, right. So, but yeah, it's it's crazy how how many new names that we didn't didn't know of going into this year are starting to emerge at on you know the defensive end and defensive tackle positions. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of expected. I mean, going into the year, just for me, tumble wise, Jacob Martin was a name that we kind of knew would you know would be a significant guy. But we didn't also expect him to be one of the, the leaders in the conference in sacks. And the same can be said for Roach. I, honestly, you know, Roach was a guy that we didn't know what to expect of coming in from this year. We thought it could be other guys. So, you know, defensive linemen, it's one of those things that, I mean, and it's also a per-game thing. I brought up Lawler. He had four sacks a couple of weeks ago. So that's part of the reason why I'm so big on him. But the four sacks, it doesn't matter who you I mean, I don't care who you're playing against. Four sacks, four sacks. So you should get some credit for that. But to just keep it going a little bit, we're going to go on to in the linebacking core. And, again, I sh- I struggled with the linebacking core just because there were some names that I kept seeing over and over again. But I wasn't sure if it was one of those things. And those the two names I'm going to bring up are Diggs and, um, God, I'm having a brain fart now because I didn't write his name down, the other guy from UConn, Davis? Junior, Junior Joseph. Joseph, that's what it is. Junior Joseph, yes. And the two of them, I mean, obviously they rank statistically high, but I don't know now just because of how bad those defenses have been or just because they're actually making plays. Yeah, I I think with what I mentioned earlier is that the passing game is what's been struggling. I don't think that has anything to do with either of those two, but they are the leaders of that group, and 
need to get things turned around quickly. A guy, a couple other guys that I want to bring up is Augie Sanchez from USF is really benefiting from learning from Charlie Strong. He's had, he's had a great year so far. Micah Thomas from Navy kind of gets swept, swept under the rug because I mean, they they have so many people on defense. Even Shaquem Griffin uh, from UCF, oh. uh, he was defensive player of the year last year. And the fact that there's so many players on his side of the ball for the Knights that his stats just aren't up to par with other people in the conference. But it, he's still a player that people need to watch out for. Yeah, and I think that was part of my problem. I didn't want to bring up a ton of names that we already brought up in the preseason. But, I mean, I guess in the end, those are all the top guys. You just mentioned all of them. I was trying to find other guys. But, I mean, Palmore was a guy I feel like we didn't talk a whole lot about going into the year. That's why I kind of brought him up. He's making plays, whether it is defense or, excuse me, whether it's against the run or against the pass. So that's why I kind of want to bring them up. And then you know, the two UConn guys, they're putting up the numbers. But like I said, I don't know if that's just more of just how bad those defenses are or they're actually making plays out there. But to keep it going, let's go into the secondary because in the secondary, I, mean, I guess it, may, it might be just one of those things where I just like guys who are speed guys because I can I came up with a whole boatload of names for guys at cornerback and at safety. Um, there was a couple guys obviously that really stand out. Two of them are guys we picked for our off all conference teams going in the year, and that's Perry Nickerson and Nichols Dietrich. But then there's another guy for USF that's kind of been impressing me, and that is uh, Mazzy Wilkins because he's got picked off of quite a few passes. Yeah, which is that's he's been a nice surprise. Nickerson, I think, had a slow start to the year, but has picked things up as of late. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of people at these positions that are stepping up in a big way. And then at safety, the two Temple guys could, we could pick them as the first team guys simply based off stats. Agreed. Agreed and not trying to be a homer, but agreed. Yeah, but, and I think that has more, that tells us more about how bad the Owls defense has been so far. But I mean, they're, they're making plays. Being a homer. Yeah, and they're making plays, which is good, but even like Garrett Davis from Houston and Jonathan Cook from Memphis, like you could put them in it, in there as well. They're not getting nearly as many opportunities as Chandler and Randall, but I think Temple fans would probably appreciate if, if both their safeties stats were, um, on the lower side to say the least. I can't argue that. Can't argue that to say the least, like you just said. Obviously, we'd rather not see them picking up all the tackles. I mean, you mentioned Garrett Davis. That was another guy who I kind of did consider for a defensive player in the year just because he's another guy like Randall or I feel like is just making it happen, whether it is in the ground game or in the passing game. I don't have the the stats right in front of me right now, but I'm pretty sure he's up there with everybody in interceptions with her. I think he's tied with the conference lead at three for interceptions. Uh, he's, I know he's up there in tackles for sure, just like the other two guys you just mentioned from Temple. Another guy that I want to – you mentioned Cook, who I think is a great player too. But another guy I want to mention is Terrell Carter, who's having a great year as well. I think defensively, at least in the secondary – that going into it, I think Temple's obviously we just mentioned that their two safeties are just phenomenal. Could win, then they might take they might take both of those spots just because of how much they have to play. 
I yeah, could, definitely. I, I'm sorry, I'm not not to cut you off, but I might make the argument that you know, somebody we haven't really brought up yet, and it's a guy named Mike Jones, who is an NFL prospect, who Temple did pick up as a fifth-year graduate, and he could potentially make that list as well. Yeah, I think he gets less recognition because, you know, Chandler and Brandel are making the plays, but if you watch Temple's games, you'll see number 10 all around the defense, and if I recall correctly, I believe he's a returner as well and yep. has has some speed to pull that's away. How was, that's how he's going to make his mark in the NFL probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, yeah, um, I mean, obviously I can talk about Temple all night long, but we have – Taking this episode probably a little bit farther than we thought we were going to. Anything else you want to do before we jump off of this one and watch, finally watch some football this weekend? Because I know we were saying beforehand that we both have had some crazy couple of weeks, so we haven't been able to watch a lot of football. Yeah, no, I got nothing else. And just let's get back to watching watching football on Saturday. Amen to that. Amen to that. So I guess we could end this show. Like I said, thank you for listening. This is our eighth episode of the AAC version of this podcast. Again, make sure you're listening to the Conference USA and the Sunbelt version of our shows. Obviously, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and that's at Underdog Dynasty. Me and Joey on our personal ones as well. We would greatly appreciate that. Leave us the reviews. And Joey, unless you got anything else to say, I guess we'll see you next week. Sounds good. All right, underdogs. See you next week.